welcome to the Old Soul Movie Podcast, your number one spot for classic movie rewatches and breakdowns. My name is Jack Oremus, and I'm here with my sister, Emma Oremus. We decided that we wanted to make a show that reflected our love and appreciation for classic movies. And while you're here, hopefully we can share that together as an Old Soul family. We're going to be diving into these movies scene by scene and giving our modern reactions to the films that have influenced generations of people. There will be fun facts, hot takes, tears, laughter, and everything in between. And with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast. We have an absolutely phenomenal movie on our hands. Can't wait to get into it. We have so many notes. Emma, how are you today? We are covering Anatomy of a Murder. Wow. I was doing great. I'm so excited to talk about this one. Again, thank you so much to our listener that recommended this. This was an amazing suggestion. So I'm so happy we were able to watch it and that we're able to dive a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. On the the outside, I wasn't sure how to handle this request because I don't think I had heard of it before. But going into it, it was a mind-blowing, unbelievably phenomenal movie. Like This was probably one of the best movies I'd seen in a really long time. Definitely makes you think. And I, I'm not going to lie. I, I was scared. I was scared at first. It's a two hour and 40 <laughs> minute movie from 1959. I, I wasn't sure really what to, what to think about that. Plus, for those of you who don't know, it's a courtroom drama, which again, like, okay, how do you make a courtroom drama interesting? Maybe that's what I was thinking, but what a movie. This was absolutely amazing. Emma, what are your just initial thoughts? Yeah, really good. Right off the bat, again, like I kind of mentioned last week, I have seen bits and pieces. I feel like there are definitely movies out there where I've either watched a ton of clips on YouTube or maybe it's on TCM and I tune into it for a little bit, but maybe if it's long, I don't get to watch the full thing. And this is one of those where I saw a part, but this was kind of my first time watching it full and total, totally devoted to it. And I loved it. It was so good. I Oh my gosh, just what an amazing movie. And again, courtroom dramas are kind of a hit or a miss for me personally. I definitely have some favorites up there. So you can definitely make a courtroom drama really interesting. But this is cool for a ton of reasons because I feel like this, I don't even know how to describe it, dismantled the patriarchy or just, it just went against the grain at a very young point in time. And that's what I really found interesting. This is one of those movies where back in the day it would have been interesting to watch. But as a modern audience, it's even cooler to watch because now we have all these strides that we've made in all these different movements in terms of social justice. And it's awesome to see it in hindsight, I guess. Yeah. Our man Otto Preminger, the director that we covered last week, he was behind this one. So we know that it was going to be somewhat controversial as far as the topics that were covered. And yeah, I mean, like you said, I think it would have been really interesting to go back in time and see culturally what it was like to watch something like this when not everything is as controversial. I feel like today we're somewhat desensitized towards these topics, but back then, definitely not the case. So I think that makes it super interesting. Yeah. I mean, even 
as being in the mindset of this is an older movie, I think there's stuff that was a shock to my system just because you put your head in the time place of production code and all of these censorship things. And then I guess when you hear some of the terminology used, you're like, whoa, this is really advanced. So that was what was super cool about watching this. And again, this is just a phenomenal, to me, very accurate to how a real trial would work. Totally, totally. Part of that being Otto Preminger having his family background and his small dabblings in law. And then Wendell Mays, who wrote the screenplay, he actually attended one year of law school himself. So he was a little familiar with this atmosphere as well. I think he did a phenomenal job. I think he's one of the best talents that was brought to this project. Yeah. And Joseph N. Welsh, the man who played Judge Weaver in the movie, was actually an American lawyer who served as chief counsel for the United States Army. So even he had some exposure into law and really brought, I think, I guess, the realism to that role. So I think just doing totally. that extra like research was so, so cool. And you could totally see it. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. 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 I like, love when a non-actor is cast for their real life equivalent role in a movie. There's definitely a few out there. And this is a prime example. You would have never known. You would have just thought he's like, oh, wow, that's a really good actor. He really did a lot of research. But it's like, no, that's his life. And he just adapted that to. I don't know. I feel like he was a lawyer who was treating it like a real situation, which was cool. Yeah. I mean, it even it got him a nomination for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. I actually thought that behind Jimmy Stewart, that he was probably my favorite actor. He was the one that I actually went out of my way to look up like, who is that guy? Because I'd never seen him before. And this is the only thing he's been in. But he, he did an amazing job. Um, I guess while Great we're on, screen presence for not yeah. being trained. Oh, totally. I, I think the scene where he calls the lawyers in to talk about the uh, the the way that they're going to describe the undergarment situation yeah. is one of my favorite scenes. That really was kind of a, a bright moment for him. But yeah, I mean, let's talk a, a little bit about the, uh, the actors. So Jimmy Stewart as Paul Beegler, Lee Remick as Laura Mannion. Ben Gazzara as Lieutenant Frederick Mannion, Arthur O'Connell as Parnell McCarthy, Eve Arden as Maida Rutledge, Catherine Grant as Mary Palance, Joseph N. Welch as Judge Weaver, George C. Scott as Claude Dancer, Orson Bean as Dr. Matthew Smith, and even a little cameo from our personal favorite, Duke Ellington, as uh, Pi Eye. I was dying at that. Wow, cool. Yeah, no, I love Duke Ellington. He was, I mean... Let's take a minute to also appreciate the uh, the music from him. He was, I guess, in charge of conducting the score for it. So amazing score. Amazing score. I actually, that was one of the first standout things as the credits were going in the beginning. So the jazz score was composed by Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. And it was really, this is actually kind of a big deal because it's the first Hollywood film music by African-Americans that are non-diegetic music. And that means music whose source is not visible or uh, implied in the film. Yeah, so that was really cool because it was an on-screen band. You could see the source of the music and it was men of color. And the score also avoids cultural stereotypes, but this kind of rejected that and made it its own, which was really cool. Definitely, definitely. And I actually, I forgot to give a quick shout out to one of my personal favorite finds of the movie, Murray Hamilton. Uh, Alphonse Paquette, also known as the uh, the mayor from Jaws, aka from uh, Graduate. 
he's uh mr robinson so pretty fun like when he was on the stand i was i was thinking to myself his voice sounds so familiar and he kind of looks like him i wonder if that's him and lo and behold it was that was a pretty fun find but yeah i mean overall great cast i think that this was just strong performances all around and totally from my end very unexpectedly exciting and thrilling i guess plot for what it is which is a courtroom drama so oh love it yeah absolutely and we'll probably get into some of our favorite highlights of the different performances but i agree great acting all around very strong cast here so this movie where do we even begin so the background of it is that it is based off of a true story slash book based off of a true story the inspiration on july 31st 1952 lieutenant coleman a peterson shot and killed a man in big bay michigan so kind of where this takes place and the person who wrote the book was the lawyer he was the defense attorney and he used the rare version of the insanity defense called irresistible impulse and it had not been used since 1886, which I think might be the case that they're referring to in the movie. The jury then decided not guilty by reason of insanity. So really interesting. But two days later, after he was acquitted, I think he was examined by a psychiatrist who judged him as sane when he was released. Again, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of psychological evaluations later during the film, but just some good to know stuff. The language in this film was very, very unusual for the time. Part of the controversy around the movie was that included words such as, and I'm using, we're not going to bleep this any of these out because I'm using it to just explain the art form, but the film included words such as bitch, contraceptive, panties, penetration, rape, slut, and sperm which is really crazy for the time. It's so much so that Chicago Richard J. Daly and his police commissioner were not having this. And as a result, the film was temporarily banned in Chicago. But Preminger filed in federal court and in, in Illinois, and the mayor's decision was overturned. And remember, this came out in 1959. Free speech was granted to films in 1952. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's such an interesting movie because not only is it one of the first to really embrace, I guess, the darker side of humanity, much like, I guess, a lot of films weren't ready to do because of the code back in the day. But I mean, even the actors that we're familiar with, like Jimmy Stewart, constantly seeing him sort of in all of these hero type roles or like the main protagonist, and he's still that guy in this movie. But I will put air quotes over the word protagonist because much like everyone else in the movie like he is also acting out of his own self-interest and one could even argue that it's not even the most noble cause so i think this is just such a fascinating movie from like multiple multiple standpoints because it's just very human and it's not like there's this clear sort of line between good and bad and moral and unjust like it really does make you think so that's that's what I loved about it. That's what is so interesting. Like you said, the whole theme of this movie is human fallibility or the ability to err as human and how that factors into when we make major decisions in terms of law to our fellow man. 
there are so many instances of wavering behaviors in this film. It's really complex. This is a very dense film. It's very content heavy. So hopefully we can break it down for you guys in a helpful way. Again, it tackles a lot. There's definitely a lot of critiques with this. Actually, this is really applauded as a great film covering legal issues. One of the best. Yeah, Yeah. Anatomy of a Murder was actually, in 1989, it was rated as one of the 12 best trial films of all time. And it's used a lot in law school to show how trial works, basically, because it does cover everything from, well, not like the crime itself, but it covers from obtaining the lawyer through the verdict. So yeah, really, in the U.S. criminal justice system. But there's definitely some controversies, one of which being the use of witness coaching, which is against the legal canons. And also, and again, I think this is more of just the art interpretation of the moral ambiguity. Like you have the Jimmy Stewart lawyer and he's the protagonist. And then you have his defendant and they have the same side, but you might not feel the same way about them. And, you know, the means that the lawyer takes in order to win this for him. Yeah. So moving into the film itself, or I love that it takes place in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I thought that was a really cool setting for this. Yes. That's where the actual real life story took place. It being shot in black and white, I think helped tell the story really well. Something really interesting, just kind of a fun fact to keep in mind, this came out in 1959, right? And this is a black and white movie. So films being shot in color, that isn't new by any means. Some of the earliest ones that we can cite are The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. Those came out in 1939. However, television starts coming out in the 50s, and that totally changes the use of color in film. So in the beginning of the 50s, about 20% of the movies were shot in color. And now TV is emerging and the film industry then needs to differentiate itself and bring something to the table that TV cannot offer. So one of those channels was shooting in color. So by 1955, 50% of the movies that came out were shot in color. But by the end of the decade, so by when this came out, color film production dropped down to 20% again, then you don't really see the rise in color until TV or television becomes colorized. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty good point and um, pretty interesting too. Like I think that the black and white decision, like whether it was, whether it was made for, you know, this decision or that, I think that it really, it aids in sort of the overall theme Oh, totally. Of our issues, black and white, what's the gray area? Obviously, in a black and white film, there's a ton of gray, but we refer to it as black and white. Yeah, it's a really cool metaphor. Yeah. In almost, I mean, like it's a black and white movie is never truly just black and white. I mean, it has so many grays in it. So I think that that, I mean, artistically, it's a, it's a very cool way to, I guess, interpret the overall message and whatnot. But yeah, I like that decision. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, bravo, Otto Preminger, another uh, <laughs> another uh, point for you. Again, this was in the majority. Most films were black and white, but this really particularly suited it. And a guy with like, as good of a directorial reputation as Preminger could have shot it in color. But I think, again, black and white really helps tell the story of a drama a little bit 
better in terms of older movies. So really cool. Again, a little bit of things to look out for while you're watching it. We kind of alluded to it last week in terms of directorial trademarks. Preminger is known for his long takes. We definitely have a few of those here. We have no flashbacks. Uh, Preminger actually did not like the use of flashbacks. So none are in this movie, which I love because I think it just makes it more and more realistic in the moment. Yeah, I think that was a really cool choice. And then the various positions on what's right and wrong and what's moral and what's ethical, serving justice, what even is justice? It's all very heady. <laughs> this, and yeah. this movie covers all of it. Yeah, no, super relative. And like I briefly mentioned before, it's just interesting because when you realize that everyone, every single person in this movie is acting out of their own self-interest, including Jimmy Stewart's secretary who just wants to get paid. She, do, mm -hmm. she doesn't care about what's right or wrong. Like as far as the justice goes, she just wants to get paid. So it's, it's cool. It's cool to see. Well, in any good story, every single character, no matter how minor they are, is going to have a motive. And this just nails it completely, which, again, I'm going to give credit to our screenwriter because I think they did a really good job of doing that. And then the cast brings it to life. Oh, very, very small tidbit. Saul Bass designed the titles and poster for both this and Vertigo. So if you look at the poster for this and Vertigo, they look really similar. And that's because it's the same artist. Yeah, but I just love those opening titles. I think oh, yeah. that really, really cool animation design situation. Um, quick note, I guess, like adding or riffing off of that is mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, totally. You could totally see the vertigo, I guess, similarities there, but also just, uh, again, bringing the score back into the, uh, the forefront. I think that the, the jazz sort of theme is perfect because jazz is sort of chaotic, mm -hmm. you know, comes in with, you know, what they have to say and just whatever makes the flow continue. And I want to say that this movie sort of resembles jazz in a few ways. I mean, most movies do have rhythms and stuff, but this one in particular, you need some type of some action or some type of mental stimulation going, I think, especially for a courtroom drama, because I mean, how do you make a courtroom drama interesting in general? And I think that it's cool to, I mean, there isn't much music I think played during those scenes but when we're outside of the courtroom and you know we're in the the bars or maybe his house and we have those the jazz playing it, it's a cool sort of distraction yeah the pacing of this film to me is actually really phenomenal i think that they break it up so well and when i'm watching this i don't feel like i'm watching uh, an almost three-hour movie to be honest with you no, i totally i get so sucked into the details where I'm trying to figure things out and establish things in my head that I, whatever, who cares yeah. that it's yeah. long because you're just driven to be dedicated to it. Yeah. So R rarely a uh, quick, I guess, interjection is just rarely is it that you watch an almost three hour movie and then you're like, I want to watch that again just to yeah. cover and see what the details were that I missed the first time because the ending left me speechless, confused, but also like what just happened? I, I was just so surprised because it's not gimmicky or like there's no clear, I guess, moral line that there's drawn in the sand. So it just leaves you questioning everything. And yeah. like Oh, yeah. It's very philosophical movie. There's some pieces of film and television shows where you watch and you can just enjoy it for what it is. 
and there's some that you can enjoy it for what it is and you can like to think about it. There's also some where you maybe you just like don't love washing it, but you do love to think about. No matter what, I think this is one that you'll like to think about and potentially enjoy. Definitely. So before we get into sort of more of the rewatch, Emma, do you want to describe sort of briefly one of the more main, I guess, plot lines that comes up in the movie? Yeah. So I'm going to just give you a brief overview on psychological assessment uh, used for forensic purposes. I'm going to dive into it way deeper when it comes up during the rewatch, but just to get some things cleared out. Yeah. So psychological assessment used in the American criminal justice system. So the first time an American psychologist testified as an expert witness was in 1921 and in Uh, Jenkins versus U.S. in 1962, so this is again a few years after this movie came out, that case helped establish psychologists as being able to testify as expert witnesses in court cases. So when you are asked to do a forensic assessment for someone, you have to go through a number of things, but basically you need to identify the problem or the referral question You need to select your measurement instruments, and you always have to use measurements that answer the referral question. And then you have to integrate all these sources of information regarding the problem, so maybe the person's background or history or an interview of sorts. And then when you do all these steps, then you can derive and report conclusions, opinions, and or recommendations on things. That's just how assessments work. Now, Another really kind of interesting thing to take into account with assessment is establishing or distinguishing situational versus enduring behaviors and predicting how someone will respond to different situations. A couple quick notes, um, just legal stuff. As we go, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a law expert by any means, but here are just some quick things. If you're not familiar with the U.S. criminal justice system, this might help you understand the movie if you get confused. So the, to my knowledge, the U.S. court system works a little differently than it does in Europe. So for our European listeners, this might look a little different. It's kind of a different model. And then in criminal cases, the burden of proving a defendant's guilt is on the prosecution, not the defense. And they must establish that fact beyond a reasonable doubt. So that is what's necessary. However, An insanity plea is a little bit of a different situation. Again, the prosecutor still has to prove the defendant's guilt, but in the majority of states, the burden of proving insanity is placed on the defendant who must prove their insanity. It's not on the prosecution to prove them being sane. Cool. Yeah. Got that, everyone? Good. Because it's (laughs) going to come in handy later. But yeah, Emma, do you have anything else that uh, would be pretty... I guess, handy for listeners to, to know beforehand, just to, I guess, give, give them a better idea before the rewatch. It'll come up. We're going to be getting into some vocab terms. We're going to probably bring up some real life examples for some comparison contrast for the sake of the movie. There's probably, this is such a big movie and there's a lot going on. And I want to apologize in advance if we forget anything Please reach out to us, uh, message us if you want to have more of a conversation on something we forgot, but we're going to try our best to get everything in with our experience of this film. Definitely, definitely. And there's a lot to go over too. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into it. So yeah, I mean, very, very, very early on in the film, we get sort of this 
very quiet, I think just normal sort of opening. You know, we get our introduction to Paul Beagler, who is played by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, we find out that he was a former district attorney who lost his re-election bid. And that he's a simple guy. He just, he likes to fish, play the piano, and uh, hang out with his buddy who I guess was a, a colleague, but also a raging alcoholic, <laughs> Parnell McCarthy. I, I we have to give credit to the screenwriter Ann Preminger here. We get introduced to the subject of alcohol use disorders, and that becomes a subplot throughout this whole movie. But I like that it's addressed. And we also kind of have like an archetypical maid of Rutledge, who's kind of like your comic relief, stereotypical secretary, kind of keeping keeping everything together. Yeah. Yeah. And she just wants to get paid. You know, like she hasn't been paid <laughs> in a long time. So um, I think Paul Bugler is just taking his time as far as finding new work, but it doesn't really take long before he gets a mysterious sort of phone call by this Laura Mannion, who out of the blue asks him if he can defend her husband, uh, U.S. Army Lieutenant Frederick Manny Mannion. Quick question here. This is sort of, I guess, for you, for the audience, anyone who wants to just ponder about this. Who do you think was the person that gave the phone call or tipped off, you know, Laura Mannion? Like she got an anonymous source to, I guess, reach out to Beagler. Who do you think that could have been? You know, I mean, it could it, it could be a lot of things. It could be one of the trio there being like, oh, hey, here's a way to get some money because um, it looks like they're all in for money. I, I don't know. It is interesting to think about. I mean, he could have a really good reputation. He was a district attorney. So he could be like, hey, this guy knows the system really well. Or it could be, you know, his lawyer friend tipped her off and then it gets back to him. I don't know. It, it could be a few things. I think... In some very conspiracy way, it could have been Mary Pallant, who, <laughs> in a sort <laughs> of who, in a Brand Stark way, knew how everything would unfold and was like, "Beagler's going to win this case," and then I'm going to use amazing. him. That'd be amazing. But you know, that's just kind of fun stuff to pontificate about. But uh, but yeah, so we find out that Laura Mannion, this woman, her husband has just been arrested for first degree murder because he apparently killed this other man, Barney Quill who is an innkeeper. And Mannion does not deny the murder, but claims that Quill raped his wife, Laura. So here we go. This yeah, we I go. mean, breaking down a few of these things first, I love her intro to Laura Mannion, played by Lee Remick. And I adore her. She is like a spitfire actress. If you've seen her work, especially in A Face in the Crowd, which is kind of how she was discovered for this role, or The Days of Wine and Roses, she is so talented. She has such an amazing energy. I love that they make her super intriguing, having her sunglasses on and her dog with her all the time. Really interesting quirks right away. And then we get Mannion, who is, oh my gosh, to me, already strikes up. I don't know. I would say hard to read, more to dislikable. And Jimmy Stewart's acting is on point. I just, I love that he's a very good, he's up to snuff with this guy, or he can stand his own ground with this guy. And Mannion, right off the bat, he's just like, it's an unwritten law. It's okay that I killed this guy. You don't see him coming out guns blazing with, I don't remember. I was just in a fury. He was just like, well, that happened. And so, of course, I did this. And yeah, yeah already a little troublesome there. This man is living by the Hammurabi code. and <laughs> right, exa Exactly, which is kind of like the origins of the insanity plea. 
But my favorite interaction between these two men and this just one exchange just speaks volumes to the whole relationship and character of these two people is when Mannion goes, sorry if I offended you. And Jimmy Stewart goes, no, you're not. And it's just an awesome characterization because Mannion is like, I can get out of trouble pretty easily. I just say stuff to get out of trouble. That's all he cares about. Or Beagler's like, no, I'm too smart for this. I'm too smart to be tricked. And you get that in that one exchange, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, the man's a lawyer. He can see through the BS, but he also knows how to spin it up. And so I think that that is also one of the more interesting things. Like Beagler's a lot more intellectual, I think, than he puts on. I, I think that some of his countryness is sort of almost an act. Like as oh, it's odd a as huge it is. guys. So, um, so yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, again, analyzing the characters individually, I think Mannion thinks he's a lot smarter than he truly is. If it wasn't for Beagler, like he'd, he'd be, you know, or sentenced for life. But yeah, just seeing Mannion for the first time, it is hard to read him. You, you don't really know right now at the very onset of meeting him, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. But I mean, it becomes pretty apparent quickly that he's not. <laughs> From just a brief first glance, I the things I dislike is that he thinks he can just take the law into his own hands. The things I, not that I like it necessarily, but the things that you can empathize with are that his wife was raped. That would cause a huge surge of emotions in you. I think it kind of depends on the audience what you think of him. But mm-hmm. yeah. So then Beagler is like, I don't know if we want to take this or not. But then he goes back to talk to Mannion. And this is really interesting because this is kind of the determinant of whether he's going to take this. And he gives the possible reasons for murder to Mannion. The four the four acceptable, I think, not excuses, yes. but like ways that you can fight it. Right. And that would be that it wasn't a murder. It was an accident or suicide that she didn't do it, that it was legally justified, like protection or self-defense, or that the killing was excusable. And right away, Mannion is like, yeah, legally justified. And Beagler's like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> and it was Which one of those sounds murder. justified? Yeah. Yeah. So right away, you get the interesting dynamic. The mindset is very interesting for Mannion. And we get into our first kind of scuffle of we coaching the witness. Yeah, yeah, it's a little blurry uh, here. I don't want to say that he gave him the answer, but I mean, he, <laughs> it's, it's like not when too you, far off from that. It's like when you're working with a tutor and you're like, B, <laughs> C, <laughs> yeah. and they're just, they're just like, no, <laughs> no. And then like you finally get to the right answer and they don't say anything like it could be that. And like, yeah, he spells it out pretty oh. pretty clearly for Mannion what he has to do or I guess what the only way of having a case would be and james stewart is so darn likable that you don't really see this as wrong you're like yeah he's got to help this guy but it's you know it's not exactly right so i don't know really kind of yeah fair you're already getting into the moral ambiguity of this film okay so i want to get into because again finally they get into okay can you think of an excuse for why this was excusable and Mannion's like, I must have been mad, meaning crazy. Am I getting warmer? And that line just kills me. <laughs> He's looking for direction. Um, oh, yeah, that's what happens. So mad, crazy. This leads to the ultimate big subject of this film or kind of use of in this film. And that would be 
not guilty by reason of insanity, otherwise known as the NGRI plea. I think it's really important that we differentiate insanity, the insanity plea, and competency. So what is the insanity plea? And it is arguing that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due to either a one-time or persistent mental health illness at the time that the criminal act took place. And in that case, legal guilt is not established and the defendant may not be then punished. If the defendant is then found not guilty by reason of insanity, then they are typically committed to a psychiatric facility. And theoretically, once the defendant is treated and judged to no longer be dangerous, then they are released. Nowadays, there's some alternatives. There's guilty but mentally ill, which is called GMBI. In Michigan, coincidentally enough, was the first state to create this verdict because I believe they did release one or two people by NGRI and then they went on to kill someone within the year or something like that. Yeah. So the NGRI plea is incredibly rare. It's used in less than 1% of all court cases, less than 2% of all felony cases. And when it is used, it's only about 25 to 26% successful. And of those successful cases, a fraction of a fraction then, 90% of the defendants had already previously been diagnosed with a mental illness. There are four states that don't allow for the NGRI defense, and those are Kansas, Montana, Idaho, and Utah. And then we have competency, which is a little different than the insanity defense. You could potentially be both, but they are different. So competency is understanding the trial proceeding and whether or not the defendant is able to assist his or her attorney in preparing a defense and making informed decisions about the trial and understanding what it means to plead guilty or accept a plea deal or not plead guilty at the present time. So insanity is at the time of the crime, competency is at the time of the trial. And if you're not found to be competent to stand trial, you might go through a process called competency restoration. So for example, at an extreme level, let's say death penalty is on the line. And if you can't understand why you're being put to death, you can't, that person can't be put on trial. So they'd go through competency restoration. Okay, here are some famous NGRI cases that I think we should compare this film to because this could help give us a little bit of a better understanding of what's on the line for this Mannion character in this film if he decides to go through with this plea. Biggest, biggest, most famous case of NGRI, probably known in the U.S., is that of John Hinckley Jr. And this is a huge historical one. So Hinckley Jr. became obsessed with Jodie Foster and the 1976 film Taxi, in which the protagonist plots to assassinate the president. So Hinckley Jr. moved closer to Jodie Foster. He stalked her. He tried thinking of ways to impress her and get on her level of fame so that he could be worthy to her, some of which included airplane hijacking, which air piracy was actually relatively common in the 70s. And then he finally decided he would shoot President Reagan. So that's what he did. He tried to shoot Reagan. Reagan lived, of course, but another individual was critically injured for life. And then in 1982, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and it caused a huge uproar. So then the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 comes into place. Are that altered the rules for consideration of mental illness as a defense in court proceedings and actually kind of restricted the use of a psychologist or a psychiatrist as an expert witness 
and whether or not they can conclude if a defendant was sane or insane at the time of the crime, which is actually kind of a shame because a mental health professional being called as an expert witness, you're not saying if someone's sane or insane ever. There's no diagnosis for being insane in the DSM. So you're really just giving a comprehensive overview of these evaluations, but that's whatever. Then more on Hinckley. In 2016, actually, he was released from psychiatric care. Like we mentioned with the NGRI, you're placed in psychiatric care until you're deemed not a danger to society anymore. He was released, but it comes with massive restrictions and requirements. For example, no substance use, no weapons, no contacting Jodie Foster and her family or Reagan's family, no violent movies, not allowed to clear internet searches, can only go a certain distance from his house. It's essentially parole, if not harsher. And on top of that, I think he still had a complete, maybe a violence risk assessment after he was released. NGRI, you're not walking out scot-free. You're still detained until you're considered not dangerous, which is interesting. And then we have kind of another case, and this isn't NGRI, but this is really, to me, similar to the explanation given in this film. And it's the historical case of that of Jack Ruby fatally shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. So Lee Harvey Oswald is charged for assassinating President Kennedy and Officer Tippett. And then Jack Ruby decides to shoot him before the trial. Jack Ruby's found guilty on the conviction, but was later appealed. However, this was his, there's, oh my gosh, well, there's conspiracy theories aplenty with this one on what the real motive was, but this is the motive he gave, that he was just so emotionally distraught over his president being killed. He was in deep mourning. He had such a love for our country and the Kennedys and all this stuff. And he was in such anguish. And this is a quote. Ruby stated that he finally reached the point of insanity, compelling him to shoot Oswald when he walked to the police ramp. So that explanation just strikes me as super similar to this film. And that's a guy that was convicted. Yeah. Oh, I also want to make this abundantly clear as we go on in the film. Having a mental health disorder or a mental illness does not make you a criminal. And not all criminals have mental health disorders. As humans, we all engage or act on criminogenic thinking, meaning our attempts to deviate from some sort of standard or rules or boundaries. And it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum of behaviors. And it could be as minor as white lies or a high schooler cheating on a math test to violence and murder. We all do it to a certain degree, but there's some people who will take it to more extremes like the violent murder side than others. And most people with mental illnesses are not violent. So only 3 to 5% of violent acts are attributed to people with mental health disorders. And on top of that, people with mental health disorders are over 10 times more likely to be victims of violent crimes than the general population. So I just think we need to make that distinction. Yeah, I mean, all good stuff, I think, very relevant and good to keep in mind uh, throughout it. And it does serve as a, a good way to... I guess, related to the movie and the case that is at hand. So all very um, relevant things. But yeah, so I guess we get to I see a little bit more characterization of all the characters prior to the case itself. We see a little bit about Laura being pretty flirty. You know, she she's flirty with um, Beagler. She is sort of 
just a very like naturally nice person. All also shout out Muff. Her dog is <laughs> phenomenal. But, Muff um, is amazing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, like immediately we get this picture of a total flirt, a little bit of a floozy, this aura of being sexual and free. And from a sexist standpoint and a lens considering the 1950s culture, I already see this as being a case made against Laura as trying to paint her as someone we either can't trust or victim blaming her like she caused her own sexual assault. Immediately, I see, I don't think Preminger is sexist. I think that's where a mind might immediately go to in the 1950s. Even today, there's there's people out there who still do victim blaming today, of course. Yeah, right off the bat. Also, we get a little bit of Jessica from Love is Blind vibes with her giving beer to her dog. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, What what's up with that? I mean, so, so funny. I also, I love that her story is just so clean cut. I love that she sticks with it, that a guy can be interested in you, but it's not on the woman to just assume that they're going to rape you. Or you know what I mean? Because the uh, Jimmy Stewart character is like, don't all women know when men are on the make? And she's like, well, yeah, you know when someone's into you, but that doesn't mean you have to be on the lookout for them. You shouldn't have to be on the lookout for them trying to rape you all the time. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yes, queen. And again, I hate the question of what were you wearing? But I feel like that was his thing because he's like, I know that they're going to go after that. But again, we've come so far where we have really drifted away from that mentality because what you wear doesn't dictate whether or not you're raped. End of story. And already we get the first use of the word panties. And I'm like, whoa, clutched my pearls. What a shocking word there. But and I could see where it's a little jarring for me. I could definitely imagine in the 50s people are like, oh, wow, panties. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's weird to hear language we hear today in an older film. And that's really cool. I also love that she stands her ground describing her sexual assault. I love that she's like, you know, that's what happened to me. I'm not really comparing it to others. This is what happened to me. Like her going in and out of consciousness, her not having to explain it or justify it. And the whole doctor examination of him not thinking she was raped. I was just like, wow, that is really interesting to watch from a 50s lens. Now, rape kits, which are the items used by medical people to gather and preserve evidence following a rape allegation, that wasn't developed until the 1970s. It's a really long process. And that wasn't for, you know, 20-ish more years. So who knows how comprehensive this 1959 examination was? We don't really know what they looked for. That's really important to keep in mind, that the rape kits back then or the sexual assault examination back then isn't what we know today. It's all good stuff to keep in mind. We also see a little bit more characterization of Mannion, Frederick Manny Mannion. We see that he is a little bit of a hothead from the way that he sort of interacts with the other inmates in the jail when they talk about his wife. Forgot to mention it earlier, maybe we did, but irresistible impulse was really what the main, (laughs) I guess, phrasing is for his insanity. Well, it's really interesting. So when we meet Mannion again, and he's explaining how he felt during the crime that he was far away, like someone else was shooting that immediately to me, I'm like, that's dissociation and dissociation is a mental process where there's a lack of continuity between someone's thoughts and their memories and their sense of identity. And again, it falls on a spectrum. It could be very small or short to a very long process. And I want to just assert that it looks very different on on everyone. So dissociative disorders, that's in the DSM, so the manual for diagnosing mental health disorders. But 
irresistible impulse, that's basically like a subcategory of the NGRI plea in 1959 that he's trying to go with. Yeah, so we have some fun scenes. We have the legal trio investigating the different people in the case, like Barney Quill and Mary Plant. And then we have, yeah, Mannion, like you said, being a little bit of a hothead, going off on this other guy. We see a little bit of a violent outburst there. So again, kind of interesting information for an audience while making their own judgments. We see Laura Mannion partying, and it's supposed to, and I see this as, being there to plant seeds of doubt in her head whether or not she was late raped or if she's oh, lying or exaggerating totally. about it. And it's very frustrating from a modern perspective because her partying doesn't negate whether or not she was raped. But however, I do know in the legal world that someone who's involved in a court case might be advised to keep a low profile. But that, you know, it's just interesting. And again, just trying to play with her minds. And then watching, I'm like, wait, is that Duke Ellington? And yeah, that me too. was a really fun, fun cameo. I loved it. And I love the scene of Paul bringing Laura home. There's a lot of unspoken emotions there. And that was a really cool scene. So the trial begins. But yeah, so we get our introduction to the local district attorney played by Brooks West. What, what's his name in this? It's uh... it's a district attorney, Mitch Ludwig. Mitch Ludwig. Ah, right. Correct. And then, um, yeah, he's assisted by the high powered Prosecutor, Claude Dancer, very well-renowned, very smart, very sharp guy. Also played by the brilliant George C. Scott. I think he deserves his own little minute or so of, I guess, recognition. This guy is an absolute tank of just a man, a person. This was like his second movie he had ever done. And he gives an unreal performance. I think he was he was nominated for an Oscar, too. Yeah, I, and deservedly so. He was one of my favorite characters, not because I liked him, but because I loved to hate him. I hated this character. But that to me, that just shows me that it was a really good actor bringing out all the terrible traits in someone. Yeah, I thought he did awesome. So big applause there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just also short, very short background on him. He, um, he also played... Uh, General Buck Turgidson in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. He played General George S. Patton in Patton uh, and Ebenezer Scrooge in the 1984 version of A Christmas Carol, which, in my opinion, is the best. But interesting note is that he refused the Academy Award for Best Actor, the one he won for Patton in 1970, because he rejected it on philosophical grounds, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Um, pretty, pretty unreal, but I mean, super, super devoted to the craft and just a, a great actor. I mean, he he did a great job, and I don't know what it says about me. Maybe I was starting to see the the lines start blurring because I was starting to like their side, the prosecution side, more as it went on because I was seeing through all the BS with Jimmy Stewart, and it's so hard because you love Jimmy Stewart, so it was crazy to. I guess, go through those emotions when the movie was progressing. I'll bring up my thoughts as we go along because this court case depicted in the movie reminded me of two other real life court cases that you can watch on other mediums. It's just so difficult. It's a very difficult situation when you really like or dislike a lawyer, really dislike or like the defendant and really dislike or like the prosecutor. Yeah. So that the whole dynamic of their presentation, it can factor into the trial. It really can. 
Shout out OJ if that's one of the things that you're referencing. It's <laughs> um, not, but <laughs> that's I feel like that's but one that of the ones that comes to mind for me. Yeah. So right away, this first defendant that they call in here, the one I think he was like charged for theft or whatever. Already, you're getting this unfair process, right? And this is a perfect prime example of what I was referring to when it term when it comes to competency. So he was supposed to be appointed a lawyer, this first guy that comes in. And he's still confused. He doesn't get that a court appointed lawyer would be your lawyer because then he's like, no use in a lawyer. What I did was wrong. He doesn't even appoint himself as lawyer. You know what I mean? So he he doesn't seem very competent to stand trial, to be honest. So immediately Mm -hmm. you're getting this is an unfair process in the context of this film. Yeah, but he's somewhat of a joking, like he's, he's kind of a comic relief almost, which it's like, it's lighthearted, but it's kind of a more serious. Uh, well, it's kind of scary because this guy it doesn't is about to have a criminal record and wasn't, didn't get a fair trial. So right. I don't know, very hard there. Okay, so we get to the case. We finally get to the case. Even though it like happens relatively quickly, it's, I think, at the 45 minute mark, if I can remember, really the prosecution is trying to block any type of mention of Mannion's motive for killing Quill, which was the supposed rape, because that would play, I guess, sympathetically to the jury. Beagler, Jimmy Stewart, eventually manages to really get the rape on the record. And uh, Judge Weaver, our great Judge Weaver, finally allows the, uh, the matter to be part of the deliberations. Yeah. Okay. So a couple key things. In terms of legal aspects, it's important to remember that, okay, what is a motive? A motive is what causes someone to carry out a certain action. In criminal law, to my knowledge, in the legal system, a motive is not required to reach a verdict. However, it can be helpful in terms of explaining why someone did what they did or if it seems obscure. So that's kind of why, how it would have been helpful to the defense, not because it would have excused anything. Yeah, and it also just is part of Bugler's brilliance where he keeps bringing it up. And yeah. so even though like technically it shouldn't be allowed to be used like in the case, the jury still hears it. And Bugler knows that. And that's what he reminds uh, Mannion. He's like, oh, they, they can't just erase it from their memory. So again, it's a murder trial, not a rape trial. Right. Um, but you're you're kind of using this magician's trick to divert things. Yeah. Remember why he did it, even though justification isn't it's an not, excuse for this murder. Yeah. So really interesting. Oh, also, what's kind of interesting just about dissociative disorders, because he has the psychological evaluation and he's diagnosed with dissociative reaction and uh, dissociative disorders are actually really commonly used with trauma. It's kind of interesting that he is a soldier and that this is brought up. And oh, and the Supreme Court case that they referred to is a real Michigan Supreme Court case. So fun things to keep in mind. And yeah, the witnesses, when Beagler talks in court, he's just so sneaky, but a laid back attitude, not an overtly deceptive approach, but kind of like cunning, not like a typical lawyer. And yeah, this is a running theme. You have your country lawyer, Versus your city industrial-esque prosecutors. And okay, when I watch this trial play out, I cannot help but think of the real-life trial of Casey Anthony. I actually had to watch this trial for my forensic science class. And the lawyer's persona 
especially the prosecutors, was extremely impactful on how you perceive that case. The prosecutor comes off as just extremely arrogant and making a murder. The Stephen Avery story. If you look at the bare evidence, I have a very hard time seeing how Stephen Avery is not guilty. However, his lawyers are so smart and likable that you are kind of rooting for his lawyers, even though I'm not really rooting for him. And the prosecutor in that case, as depicted in the Netflix series, is the most insufferable human I've ever seen. And you just want him to fail miserably. But you know that he's right. That can really complicate the case. Yeah, I mean, it gets into the the human emotional aspect of it. And then justice, I guess, truth. Everything is thrown out the window and nothing matters. You know, it, it's it's so philosophical. Eagler, it's just, how do you perceive him? Do you see his outbursts as being passionate, immature, relatable, maybe a combination of everything? I don't know. And it is kind of, I thought it was unusual. There was this one choice where they zero in on the prosecutors kind of talking about Beagler. And that was an unusual directorial choice to give a, the narration from the perspective of the quote unquote antagonist side. I also love the little line where Sergeant Dargo's the witness and he's like, oh yeah, Mannion told me if he had the whole thing to do over again, he'd still do it. That's like <laughs> the worst. That's like the worst. And then the panties debacle. Oh, the panties debacle. Yeah, I mean, like, there's there's a lot that happens in between, I guess, now and when the panties sort of come up. We get this question of the, the, the tilt of who is winning the case is constantly shifting, which I think is what makes the tempo of the film phenomenal because you have the, the parts where Dancer brings up that Mannion may have suspected that Laura was cheating on him because he asks her to swear on a rosary and she's Catholic and there's this whole, like, was she having an affair aspect to it? Um, yeah. And, I mean, and by yeah. the way, that's what makes a story a good story when it's not a positive upswing all the time and not a negative downswing all the time when there's a roller coaster shift between positive and negative for your protagonist. And the panty scene is so funny. This is one of my favorite in the whole movie. This is amazing. You have all these men coming together and they're not sure how to refer to panties. And <laughs> it's so meta. So meta because the production code wise, I'm sure that as the production code team is reading the script, they're having the same debate of what do we call these things to make it not as bad. And so that people, you know, yeah, okay I'm sure they have it, the, but... yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so then you have to have the judge in the film explain to the courtroom who acts as your audience that. The word pansy should be taken seriously, that this is an element in a rape that factors into a murder and take it seriously. So that was brilliant screenwriting to then put an explanation into your exact oppressors who might be screening this film and then to address your audience who's receiving this film. Deserves a nomination for that scene alone. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also has one of Dancer's best moments where they they ask him he's like the last one they ask like do you have any any type of word that we can call panties and he's like i heard a word once but it was it was like french but it had a, another bad connotation to it i was just that was hilarious like those subtle funny moments are just what i think really glues the film and makes it super strong yeah. great moment i think the judge did an excellent job and i'm sure that he's had to do that too in his own professional life outside yeah. of the movie like hey guys listen this is what's going to happen. This is my courtroom. These are the rules. He lays it down 
phenomenally. I do just want to say throughout the film, they do use words like sperm and sexual climax and stuff. Once it's clear that we're on this road and there's no return, it does feel very natural. And we, it feels like we as a nation are ready to move forward and stop censoring in film. So really awesome. I thought it was a very progressive take on rape when they had the doctor come in to be like, there was no presence of sperm, but I love that they clear how educational and amazing to say for it to be rape. They don't have to orgasm. How amazing to be a person in the fifties to hear that and learn that if penetration is involved, that that's rape. Just so cool. I'm so happy that that wasn't censored. Oh, and also these prosecutors are just going for these sexist moves of trying to factor in her appearance of what were you wearing when you were raped, going down this victim blaming train. And I love that Paul Beegler is like, this is BS that you're bringing this up. It doesn't matter. And I love that he's like, she's a happy woman having fun. That doesn't mean I'm already seeing these great standing up for women moments in this trial and film. And that's what tips me to the defense side, but not Mannion. I prefer how Beekler's treating the rape situation. So right. uh, as opposed to the prosecution, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's just so fuzzy between like you, you keep getting drawn back into the rape when it's the sleight of hand again, where we should be focusing on the murder, which yeah. I think it, it's like it goes into a whole bunch of high level strategies that both of the the legal teams try to, I guess, adhere to. And it's it's a constant back and forth of attack and defense and adjusting. So it, that, I think, is what makes the film just so spectacular. But um, but yeah, we find out that Quill's estate is to be inherited by this, uh, I guess, like a receptionist, like a um, Mary Plant. How would you describe her? She's kind of like a. I don't know. She's a manager of the. She's a co-manager of the inn, kind of. Yeah, she's sort of like this random woman who works at the inn. But Dancer, the prosecutor, accuses her of being Quill's mistress. And so McCarthy, if we can remember back to the beginning, alcoholic McCarthy, he learns that she is in fact Quill's daughter after making some crazy sort of drive up north to Canada. I also want to point out again, the alcohol use disorder subplot with a friend is a huge, huge part, but I think it's worth mentioning that I love that the Beagler character doesn't write him off because he has an alcohol use disorder. He still sees him as a valid person who has this co-occurring struggle. Yeah. And... Not only do we find out that Palant is Quill's daughter, we also find out that she was born out of wedlock, which is sort of, I guess, a gray area. Oh, taboo. Yeah, taboo for the time. But yeah, so uh, so Beagler at this moment realizes that he is actually losing the case, and he tries to go and persuade Palant that Al Paquette, again, played by Marie Hamilton, the bartender who witnessed the murder, may know if Quill admitted to him of raping Laura. But again, Paquette is covering this up either because he loves Palant or just out of his loyalty to Quill. Through Palant, Beeler is unable to get Paquette to testify on behalf of Mannion. Real quick things to take note. Mannion takes the stand. You're like, oh gosh, how's this going to go? And (laughs) I feel like he has spun this in his mind. Whether or not he has a dissociative disorder, he's running with it now. Oh yeah. This is me. Again, it was really interesting that they brought up the war aspect. It's really points to the prosecution for trying to establish a history of mental health problems, which, again, is something we talked about in the element of creating a mental health 
profile during an evaluation. And then you have Laura Mannion on the stand. Muffy with the flashlight is so cute. Muffy is actually played by a dog named Danny. Great job, Danny. Yeah, I feel like we have this I hate Dancer. I feel like he has this little slut-shaming attitude or multiple husband-shaming attitude. I hate the part where he gets right up close to her, too. That, oh my gosh, potentially as a sexual assault victim, that could be very, very unsettling and completely hinder you. So I hated that. And using the word prowl even. I, again, I agree with Beekler. Linguistics are huge in this case. Prowl is just one of them. Words can change a person's mind of how you depict them. And I think that's a huge theme as this movie goes on to what words are being used. And they're trying to assert that her bruises are from her husband and not from Quill. Oh, and then, so for people looking at Psychologist being used as expert witness, both the defense and the prosecution have a psychologist or psychiatrist come in to be an expert witness. If you're referred to make an evaluation, then you do it objectively, be it the defense or the prosecution. You look at the raw data and you don't spin your decision to be better for one side or the other. And that's kind of what shows up in this film. One finds one that agrees with their side. The other finds one that agrees with their side. I love immediately, we have a little bit of attention called to ageism or perceived age being right. associated with your level of knowledge, which is a massive problem. But again, how we how we judge people on appearances, you can see that throughout the board here with all the different characters, Laura being one of them too. Yeah, I, I love the uh, the interactions, I guess, between Parnell and Dr. Smith, the, the young doctor, you know, like him asking him like, oh, like, <laughs> thought you'd be older. And then Stephen <laughs> Smith said, like, it's all about the perception. He's like, oh, I, I have my glasses, if that helps. And I love that he plays with the glasses throughout when he's oh, on the stand. I thought that totally, was interesting. Totally. Yeah. No, he, I think everyone is acting. It's so meta. This, mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie is just so meta in so many ways. But yeah, I mean, after all that happens, we finally get to the, uh, I, I guess, more of a climatical scene involving the panties and I guess how they weren't involved, like it's hard not to laugh, but how they were not found at the scene of the crime, but Mary Plant found them in the laundry chute, or I guess the laundry room of her inn. So I kind of like really briefly, right before we get that, we do have, again, there's, there's, you, you guys, there's a lot of like different questionings, but the one that really stood out to me was the last time Mannion was on the stand. And then we get this one more dig from the prosecution as kind of discrediting him and as having a mental health disorder, being like, okay, so you remember being violent then, you had a violent outburst then, and you remember all these things, but you don't remember this one thing that you're on trial for. So again, that was a great move by the prosecution. But then you have the defense coming in, and I feel like Paul really drove it home a little bit. And then you bring Marion. Yeah, I mean, even I guess amidst all that, you had the uh, the other inmate coming in, and I mean, Mannion can't like contain himself when he gets upset, and even this inmate who I think was probably telling the truth, even though he like lied about his criminal record. Um, I don't know. It's hard to tell if there was something dangled for him as a right. You know, like as a deal well, or like if Bueller he was says, right? Yeah, or if he's just trying to get revenge on this guy. 
Also, you your criminal hist- having a criminal history doesn't discredit you, but lying about it does. So right, I just yeah. want to make that clear if people thought that's unfair. The problem is that he might be committing perjury again. Right. So I, I think like as a jury member, I would believe him up until like his true criminal history came up and then I would just discredit everything he said. But yeah, so I mean, we we don't know exactly like what the truth is behind the case. And I mean, it, it comes out like who who's going to, I guess, appeal more to the jury. And Beagler has one sort of more card to play. And or I guess that happens after the um the whole inmate scene happens after like mm-hmm. the panties sort of later, because like that's um that's dancers, I guess, last ace up the sleeve. Yeah. So like you said, Mary Plant comes back. She actually testifies and she brings these panties these, I guess, lost panties that weren't found at the scene of the crime, but were found inside of the laundry room at her inn. So what happened with these panties? Like, were they truly Laura's? Were they planted by Beagler? Did Quill drop them off? Did he tear them? Like, how did all this happen? And like, how did Beagler know? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think unless it was one of those earlier instances where they kind of went back to where they were from, I don't think Beagler was part of I think that's, again, I think it might be how you see it based on your moral point of view. I mean, if you're looking at Beagler's not doing anything illegal, then you'd be like, yeah, Mary did find these in the laundry chute. And because she has nothing to gain... From any of the, or well, she, I mean, like she will inherit the estate, but in terms of reputation wise, you know, I think she found them and she brought them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it had, it had to deal with, I guess, that previous interaction with Paquette, the bartender, Murray Hamilton from earlier. And I guess a whole lot of uncertainty as to whether or not like Mary is thinking her dad may have raped somebody. Well, yeah, I mean, the big the big thing here to me is the prosecution is trying to drive it home for themselves, being like everything she's saying, it's, she's trying to establish her, her ex-lover as a rapist because she's jealous and angry. Alleged but, ex-lover. Ex- alleged. Yeah, well, the, uh, from the prosecution point of view. Right. And then the when the truth comes out, it foils the prosecution and it aligns with the defense point of view, which can completely steer the track of the mind of the jury. Right. And ultimately, I guess the outcome, the uh, the final verdict, which happens not long after that. Is not guilty by reason of insanity. Yep. Yeah. And so then Beagler decides to open up his practice with his newly sober friend, the lawyer McCarthy, who has alcohol use disorder. Yeah. And then we get to the end, which is a really interesting ending. What do you think on the ending? For everyone, basically what happens was before any of this happened, like before any of the the trial occurred, Mannion promised Beeler on a promissory note that he would have to to pay him back with like a loan and that the promissory note would have to be some type of collateral. And Beeler and McCarthy are on their way to the trailer park where Mannion lives to collect this note. And once they get there, Lo and behold, Mannion and Laura are gone. <laughs> um, and not only that, 
Mannion leaves a, a note that says that his flight was an irresistible impulse, the same justification that Beekler used during the trial for the murder. So this is obviously like on purpose. Yeah. But I mean, if I'm Beekler, if I'm Beekler, this is, I guess, where I'm coming at it from. I think it was never about the money in the first place. It was just about getting back on the map. Like he probably knew that Mannion was a scumbag and that he wasn't going to pay him, but that like winning this case would put him in a good public light again, like out of his own self-interest, which was, I guess, what he was after in the first place. So my question for you, because I have my own answer. So Mannion was found NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity. Do you agree with the verdict? No, I don't. Like, that's why I, <laughs> I found myself rooting for the prosecution halfway through it, because, again, I was trying to separate the, the rape from the murder. And it was so hard yeah. because, like, I, you, you keep going back to it. But I would hear the prosecution's points. And I thought Dancer was honestly, like, a little bit better of a lawyer. Like, if I was on that jury, it would probably be a hung jury. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think about, like, especially the fact that, like, he had no history of mental illness before. So that doesn't really matter. I'm going to, yeah. I'll say it right now. It doesn't have to be documented, but yeah. it, 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 like we said, 90% of successful NGRI cases, they typically do, but it's not, it, that's not a determinant, exact determinant. So this is really interesting. I found a similar experience to making a murderer. I did not like the prosecutors as like as people, but I believed their side to be correct. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So that's what made it hard. And on top of that, I, if we had this, if this took place in the modern world after the John Hinckley Jr. stuff and all of that and Michigan changing their laws, to me, this would be probably guilty, but mentally insane. That's what I think the verdict would be guilty, but it has the mental illness. And again, I agree with you. I think that Beagler's motive was not money, but revenge on the system of him being not elected and showing that he's really up to snuff. And I, that whole, the leaving the note about the, sorry, I left. It was an irresistible impulse. It scares me because I think this guy now is going to go out there and is potentially liable then to commit another murder or fly off the handle and now be like, you know what? I I have I a disorder. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, excuse not be culpable for this behavior. So mm -hmm. he, I feel like this is just a small glimpse of I can get away with whatever I want now, which, and he didn't learn anything. I don't think any of this was about him. Oh, no. I don't not not actually having a mental illness and it was all about him trying to get away with things. Oh, so that totally. gets really frustrating. Really crazy how it came full circle. Yeah, I think there's a good chance Laura finds uh herself up in a ditch somewhere. I think, you know, Mannion <laughs> is a pretty dangerous dude. I I just I hate Mannion so much that like yeah. it it didn't matter to me like anything else. It's hard because you're you're just pulled in all these different directions and it's like yeah, but I love Beagler. I love Jimmy Stewart, and <laughs> I want to see him win. But yeah, like, but justice, you don't want to yeah. see Mannion win. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's terrible. Yeah, really, really crazy. So then we have Mary Plant who retains Beagler to execute Will's estate, so he will end up kind of getting that money after all. 
after a really long about way. Um, yeah, but oh my goodness, what a long, crazy journey. What a ride. This was an amazing movie. It, again, like if you couldn't tell from our discussion, we were pulled in a million different directions emotionally. And I think that's the the sign of a great movie and a great experience just entertainment-wise, is phenomenal. I loved this movie. I thought it was so good. And yeah, very much captivated my interest. Definitely makes you think very heavily. And I want to apologize. Once again, I know we didn't fit everything Stop in. Stop apologizing. Like, who cares? No, we, we, we just talked about this for an hour I and a half. I care because you know what? There's, there's a lot in this that was really cool that we probably didn't mention. So I invite you to either message us or write in the comments on our social media and have more conversations on us with this movie because it's really good. Yeah. And Jack, before we sign off, what was your biggest, I don't know, how do I put this, takeaway or favorite yeah. part of this film? Or like, what do you think it did for it in terms of the time it came out? You know, what was your favorite aspect of this film? Well, I think that there was one part in particular where I thought it was a really strong just scene and uh, director's choice. One that we actually, I forgot to talk about earlier was the scene where I think we see from Mannion's point of view on the stand or no, it's not Mannion. I can't remember if it was Mannion or Laura, but they were on the stand and they're getting sort of questioned by dancer and dancer keeps blocking the view of Beagler mm -hmm. who just keeps trying to poke out from, I guess the sides of um, dancer there's so many of those instances. So keep yeah. an eye out for so that. I, I think that there's just a lot of great shots in general. That one was probably one of my favorites. When it was happening, I was I was shaking my head like, oh my God, this is amazing. That one, the scene where they, they kind of huddled together to talk about the panties, that was hilarious. But I think just overall, it really made me think about like morality and the system a little bit more. Just the fact that nothing is super, you know, clean cut, that people will act in their own self-interest. It doesn't necessarily make them, you know, like good or evil. That it's just, you know, it's a it's about survival at the end of the day. And it's sort of triumphed over justice. And in a weird way, like it happens probably more often than we're comfortable with or uh, more often than we'd like. But uh, just knowing that that's kind of like reality, that it's it's not always going to, I guess, play out how you want it. And I think that was ultimately my takeaway from from it. But what about you? There were a lot of things I liked. Again, I love how they played with right and wrong and everything in between. Like you mentioned, the subtleties, the way they brought up clinical sex terms. I really like how they handled so much. I really like their incorporation of forensic psychology in this film. And what I particularly loved was the representation of women in this film, which I know kind of sounds weird because Laura wasn't like the most flattering of characters, but I, I like that she wasn't apologetic for being herself. Mm -hmm. I like that they didn't make her out to be victim blaming. I like that they didn't make her to be a liar or that her husband really did beat her. You know what I mean? I like that they didn't make her the bad guy. I like that they just made her an actual sexual assault victim and and that we can believe someone for that, regardless of how they dress or their persona or them being flirtatious or flouncy. And I like that how she presents herself isn't her being responsible for her own sexual assault. I think that's very powerful, especially back in the day. So it was a small stepping stone. Trust me, it wasn't the most major of movies to tackle that, but 
I find I find that they did tackle it nonetheless. So I really enjoyed that in this film. And yeah, I just yeah, core traumas are kind of sometimes overlooked, but can be really great. I really like A Few Good Men. For a miniseries, I really like The Night Of. That's an awesome courtroom HBO drama. If you haven't seen it, definitely watch that. Uh, do you have any other courtroom drama recommendations? Besides the classic 12 Angry Men, if you haven't watched that, oh, yeah, I mean, that just start too. there. So. You comment below on our social media, your favorites. Yeah, tell us, too. tell us. Yeah, tell us your favorites. <laughs> be sure to find us at our uh, social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, Old Soul Movie Pod, Old Soul Movie Podcast. You'll be able to find it. Facebook, Old Soul Movie Podcast. Feel free to drop us a five-star rating below. Comment. <laughs> re- review us. You know, like tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what you'd like to see more of. And um, and yeah, like always, it's always been a pleasure. Uh, this has been a very, very fun, unexpectedly phenomenal i keep saying that word but like this is a a great movie this is worth your time watching yeah Yeah. this was nominated for an academy award seven seven yeah oh best picture i meant for for best picture specifically but yeah seven right wow my brain is fried yeah but yeah i mean this is a really highly regarded movie watch it it's worth your while and wear your mask out in public yeah Yeah, don't forget to wear your mask everyone stay safe out there uh emma do you have any parting words before we sign off nope stay healthy and be considerate i'll just leave it at that definitely until next time everyone be safe out there take care